Almighty Father in heaven, you are strong. You alone are the fountain of all being, of whom and through whom and to whom are all things. You, Lord, you have most sovereign dominion over all creatures to do by them and for them and upon them whatever you wish. We praise your mighty name. We glory in your majesty. You are indeed strong. Lord, we confess this morning how quick our hearts foolishly doubt your power, your authority in our lives. We confess how we often seek to move and to make things happen by our own strength and in our own bidding, and we often fail. Lord, forgive our foolish presumption. Lord, reveal this morning these ways that we are not resting in your strength and grant us repentance in those areas. Cause your faith in Christ to spring up that we might rely and rest in your sufficient presence, provision, and protection. We ask, Father, these things for you to do them in our lives, in our hearts this morning. For it's in Christ's strong name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, notice there in your Bible in chapter 4, we're in verse 12. There's not many more verses left here in 1 Peter. Just so you know, the plan is, is to move right into 2 Peter. Um, if I do not, then we will likely never get to 2 Peter. So I'm going to go ahead and just keep moving. And so the plan is, is to move right into 2 Peter uh, when we're done with 1 Peter. But this morning, we're in the final stretch of what Peter is saying here to this congregation or these, these, these uh, exiled saints. And he is speaking to them, uh, those afflicted saints, and he's doing so in a very affectionate way. Notice he begins this time with beloved in verse 12. Beloved. He's calling upon them because he cares for them and he desires for them to be built up and strengthened in their difficulty. He's wanting them to be preserved, to not fail or even to faint, but to instead endure and to continue. Um, not just in their lives, but specifically to continue in their faith. So this morning, this is our aim. This is what the Lord has for us this morning. This congregation, as we are looking together at his word, the Lord Jesus wants to encourage us to persevere. To not fail or to faint, but instead to endure. And Lord willing, he'll do this by the power of his spirit and through the preaching of his word this morning. In order for us to persevere or to be preserved um, in the midst of our hardships and sorrows, Peter here is calling us to three unnatural truths. Unnatural, meaning that they are not automatic. They're not something that we would automatically do. This is things that are required for us to um, stop and pause and to consider. These three unnatural truths that he's calling us to are here in verses 12, 13, and 14. Each of those is a point for the sermon this morning. These three unnatural, or what I'm calling uncommon, truths that are here. Verse 12, point number one, an uncommon expectation. Here's an uncommon expectation that we have before us in verse 12, and we'll be considering that this morning. Point number two, an uncommon reaction. Verse 13, verse 13. Verse, uh, point number one, verse 12, an uncommon expectation. Point number two, an uncommon reaction, verse, verse 13. And then finally, in, in point number three, verse 14, this is an uncommon affirmation. An uncommon affirmation. An uncommon expectation. An uncommon reaction. And an uncommon affirmation. Let's jump right in. First, we see this uncommon expectation set before us in verse 12. We see how uncommon it is because here what we see is Peter is telling them that they are not to be surprised. Look with me here in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. You see here, this expectation is uncommon. We think when trials and difficulties and struggles come into our lives that these are abnormal or they should not be here. They should not be existing and here, Peter is saying that we should understand these, we should expect these things in our lives. Now, he describes this expectation. Let's draw it out here and look at it together. This is the Puritan in me that wants to squeeze every verse for all that, can, all that it can give us. Notice with me a few things that we can understand here as Peter is describing this uncommon expectation. 
First, he says that we're to expect difficult trials. Difficult trials. You see that here in our passage where it says, do not be surprised, and he describes these trials. Notice how he describes them as fiery, a fiery trial. In other words, these are trials that we need to be aware of and prepared for. They're ones that we need to understand that they are not simply merely distractions or inconveniences in our lives. These trials have intensity. They're not to be dismissed or disregarded. They're spoken of here as fiery trials. The terms here speaks of the the gravity and the depth of this hardship that we will face. Specifically when, and I want to make note here, specifically not just because we're people and humanity in the world, those trials do happen. But here, Peter is specifically speaking of those who follow after Christ. Those who follow after Christ, those who choose to go after our Savior, will be those who will experience these very difficult trials. Expect these fiery trials. How true it is, isn't it? Wouldn't it be nice, wouldn't we all like it, if we could pick and choose the trials that were before us? If we could choose the number and the severity and the timing of our trials, wouldn't that be wonderful? The Lord does not provide us for that. If so, I'm sure that many of our trials would not be quite as fiery. In fact, we would choose the ones that were more reasonable and manageable. Oh, how good it would be, we might say to ourselves, if we could possibly choose how many trials we would have in a given year. Just one or two, maybe, maybe one if it's really, really enduring for a couple of months. Wouldn't it be nice if we could choose just a very few and then make each and every one of those trials something that was manageable for us? However, here we notice that our trials are never so convenient nor accommodating. Trials that are, at, that, that are hand-picked and able to be quickly overcome and even prepared for as they will come. and They never accomplish ultimately what God is seeking to do in us. They're never given to us in wisdom and produces the end that God in his wisdom wants to have for us. If we were able to know and to select our trials as they come, then we would be able to prepare and control them with our own resources and organization. We would make a mess for sure. However, here we notice that our trials are never going to be predictable. They're never going to be accommodating to our schedules, but instead they will come to us as the Lord bids. These trials, according to Peter, are going to be fiery trials. So they will often press harder than we ever would like for them to do. They will ambush us. They will come unexpectedly. They will be very inconvenient in the seasons of our lives. And yet, these are trials that we need to be aware of. They should not then, brothers and sisters, surprise us or be strange to us. The second description that he gives here in verse 12 is that we should expect these trials to not only be difficult, but also regular. Regular. Did you notice this? Do you see how this verse, uh, this verse really is emphasizing this very point here? Peter says not that if these trials, these fiery trials come, but notice what it says in our passage. It says, do not be surprised at the fiery trials when it comes upon you. Do you notice that? And then the last phrase here in this passage says, as though something strange were happening to you. No, these trials indeed are regular. They're ordinary. There are those in the church today who think that if we are being faithful in the right way and accomplishing the right things, we're doing the right things around us, then um, if we're being faithful, then everybody will like us. Everything will be great. Our lives will be simple. They will skate along and there will be no hiccups or bumps in our lives. Instead, we need to understand that as we go through our lives, even when we're faithful, maybe even especially when we're faithful, there will be difficulties and troubles and, difficult, and, and hardships. Some like to look, and even those that are in the church like to say, that if we were being nice enough, then the world would be one to Jesus. If we were just being kind enough, if we were saying the things that were needed to be said, if we were loving people as we should, then more would come to Christ. Some would even accuse and say, you know what, I understand what you're saying. Yes, what you're saying is correct, but, but how you're saying it, this is what the problem is. Know this, that no matter how kind or nice we may be. Now, I want to um, assure you that I'm aware that there are a bunch of very unkind, unfaithful, unloving, and maybe even rude and um, objectable believers out there uh, that disregard kindness and carefulness. Let's be, let's be clear about that. However, let's also be not surprised, not think it's strange, that if we seek to be as faithful and careful and kind and gracious as we possibly can, speaking the truth with boldness, that it will indeed oppose others. They will 
confront us. They will, no matter how loving we may be, they may be, they may be shocked and they push hard against us. There will be those who will assault us and hate us because of our faith and because of speaking of Christ as we do and seeking to live in a way that honors the Lord. We need to be, however, regular in this. We need not to allow these things when we get pushed against, when we get assaulted or, 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 or even contempt comes against us. We shouldn't be shocked and pushed away from these difficulties, but understand them as something that is regular and something that is not strange that's happening, but ordinary. We see as well in this expectation that it's not simply difficult and regular, but I want you to notice if you meditate for a little bit on this verse, I want you to see here, it says in our passage, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Now let's, let's read this in the uh, ESV, the English Standard Version from the South, and this is how it would read. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon y'all, because that is actually a plural you. And then it goes on and it says, to test you, as though something strange were happening too, there's another plural you, as we say here in the South, y'all. In other words, the idea here is that these fiery trials aren't upon individuals. They're not just upon us individually. But we see here that these, these trials are on his people, the church. He's speaking here of shared trials. So these trials are not only difficult, they're trials that, not only, um, that are not only regular, but they're also shared trials that come upon each and every one of us in our congregation. And we share them together. What a blessed promise this is that we have in this world that are, that's filled with devils, as the hymn says, the filled with devils threaten to undo us, that we have brothers and sisters that walk alongside of us. By being a member of a local congregation, you're promised that you will have others who will lean in and pray for and point you to Christ in the midst of these very difficult, regular suffering and trials and sorrows that you have. As we read this morning from our covenant, those who are covenant members will exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. But I want you to understand that this also has a flip side of this truth. Let me state the converse of this truth and I want, it to, I want you to understand that this, this, is, this is no less encouraging but necessary for us to hear. And that is this. By being a covenant member of a local body of believers, you are also saying that you promise to covenant with and share in those who are going through incredibly deep sorrows and constant struggles of those who are sitting around you and those who are going through very hard times. The Lord then, therefore, is calling us here to constant fiery trials some of them, some of them not being of your own, but instead of the brothers and sisters that are around you. And so here when Peter is calling these saints to, to not be surprised, he's saying don't be surprised that the, the trials and the difficulties and the sorrows will not only be yours, but they'll be those who are around you, that are sitting around you. And we're to love and to lean into those, those things. And then finally, lastly, I want you to see here in this expectation Expectation is not only described as difficult and regular, also shared, as we just talked about, but these trials also, as we see here in our passage, have an aim. They have a purpose. They are not random or meaningless. They're not just hitting us broadside. So many times we think that because they come into our lives um, in, in such a random way. But no, these, these hardships, these trials, these fiery trials... Though difficult and regular and shared, they come into our lives and the Lord has a purpose by them. Notice what our passage says. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Notice, this is the purpose, to test you. Do you see that there? To test you. Now, what does this mean? Is the Lord just trying to press us hard and make our lives difficult because we deserve it and he's God? Not at all. What we see here is this purpose of testing is actually explained earlier. So Peter doesn't go into full detail here, but I want you to turn in your Bibles with me back to chapter 1 of 1 Peter. Chapter 1 of 1 Peter. And I want us to look together at chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. There, there we see Peter describing what it means here for this test to be taking place. And what, what in fact the Lord is seeking to do by this testing so we notice during the passage in chapter 4 that it is for our testing, these fiery trials. So what is this testing to be done? Look with me again at 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. 
and verses 6 and 7. Now let's, let's, let's spend some time here looking at this testing. It's very important for us to understand this. It says in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1, In this you rejoice. That sounds very familiar. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Here it's described as various trials, not fiery trials. And then in verse 7, notice what it says. So that the tested genuineness of your faith. There it is. The reason these various or fiery trials come into our lives is so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, let me just simply make this, this statement from our passage. Stay there in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses, verse 7 for just a minute. The testing that the Lord puts us through is good. It has a good aim. Now, I want to say that because when we're going through those trials and testings, we, we think it is bad and that the Lord is mad at us and angry and he's trying to harm us or to, or to strike us or to give us what we deserve. No, when trials and testing and hardship, even though they may be various and fiery, these are for our good. Our Lord tends to do good to us through them. Now, here's the question that every single one of you ask, including myself, and many of you have come to me and asked these things. You're going through a fiery trial. You're going through a very difficult time. And you come to me and you explain the situation. And it is heart-wrenching and it is horrible and it is hard. And you're saying, I'm trying to be faithful here. And then before our discussion is over, this is what you will ask. Shane, if I just knew why. If I only knew why this was happening. If I only knew why these difficulties were taking place. Is that what you want to know? I'm here this morning to tell you why. I'm going to tell you why. We seldom want to know this answer. We seldom really, we, we think that if we knew why, then somehow we can put our hands to it and fix it, don't we? Why is our heart so stricken? Why are trials coming into our life? Why are difficulties in the midst of us? So many of us, as soon as we get into trials and hardships, we quickly assume that the reason that we are suffering and the reason we're going through a trial is because God is punishing us and we need to do everything we can as quick as we can to get out of that trial and to make sure that things gets relieved. It makes sense because we're all sinners. And we all know deep down that we deserve it. Justification by faith alone? No way. There's no way. God's got to be, God's got to get this pound of flesh from me. He's got to beat me up and give me consequences for all these sins of mine. Every single one of us are sinners. And all of those who have placed their faith in the blood of Jesus Christ has been delivered from your sin. We think God is teaching us a lesson, putting us through the grinder because each and every one of us deserve it. However, that is contrary to the very gospel itself. When we placed our faith in Christ, the penalty and the guilt of our sin was placed on Christ, and there it resides. It was paid for totally, completely then. We now do not now have to give our part or pay our punishment. However, however, our Lord, our Lord is being kind to us and gracious to us, even with these fiery trials. What are the reasons for our fiery trials? Look again at verse 7. I want you to see it in Scripture and not just believe it because I'm telling you. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. This is why our fiery trials, our various trials take place in our lives, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This verse tells us that our trials, as difficult as they may be, and there are some that you have gone through and that I have gone through that are astonishingly difficult, incredibly difficult, heart-wrenching difficult. All of those trials and our attempts to be faith, the Lord is actually doing this for a significant and eternal reason. And here it is. Our trials serve our faith. Our trials serve our faith. You will hear me when, I'm in that, when we're in that discussion and you're talking to me and you're sharing with me all the difficulties and struggles and you're saying to me, these are so hard, Shane, why? And I will say 
to you, brother, sister, these trials and these difficulties, though they may be fiery and intense, they're incredibly difficult. We do not want to dismiss them. These trials are for your faith. We notice here that trials are not to destroy us or to harm our faith, but instead to prove and to build up the genuineness of our faith. Isn't that what it says? So that the genuineness of our faith may be found to result in praise and glory. So let's not be so quick to look for an escape when trials come into our lives. Let's not automatically say, whatever it takes, let's get rid of this. Instead, let's ask, Lord, how are you growing my faith here? How can I trust you in the midst of this? What are you doing in the midst of my life, in the midst of this trial? The difficulty and hardship must not be instantly removed for many of us. The world and Satan, our enemy, will cater to our flesh and our constant desire for comfort and ease will often look for and quickly grab for a quick, though faithless way to step away from our ordained, God-ordained trials. Your heart and mind, if, you're, if they're like me, in the midst of a trial, your heart and mind works constantly. Even in the middle of the night, you wake up. How can I get out of this? How can I make this better? How can I get out from under this pressure, this, this oppression, this difficulty? How can I get comfort and relief? We're frantically looking for this. How can I, how can I, what, what can I do to get better or to get out of this? What can I do to get some relief? What must I do to make things stop? And because the world is always there seeking to give us comfort and they too are going through struggles and hardships, the world also has an answer. And here's what the world will often say. Even, let's say, let's say this as well. Let's not, let's not just bring it to the world. But, but loved ones and friends, meaning well, will go the route of the world. Doesn't, doesn't the Lord want to make you happy? I mean, don't you deserve to be happy? I mean, you don't, you don't need to be going through this difficulty. This is hard. The Lord doesn't want you having to go through this day in and day out. There's no end to this. There's, there's no way this is going to end well. You need to get out. You need to leave. You need to do whatever you can to detach yourself. God wants you happy. God wants you healthy. This is not good for your health. God wants you to have things, not to constantly be in this dread, enjoying all the pleasures and promises of this world. That's what the Lord wants for you. That's a lie from Satan and the world. The Lord wants us to be holy. He wants our faith to be tried. He wants us to constantly be pulling away from the world, not diving into the world. Don't, don't we have rights? Isn't there other churches that I can go to? Other Christians that would affirm me leaving this relationship and my kids? Isn't there other places that I can go that call themselves Christians that will allow me to do the things I want to do? then this must be right. I must go to them. Be careful, brothers and sisters. Be on your guard. Know that choosing to be faithful in the midst of your trials will often, as we see in our passage, I'm not just mentioning this, being faithful in the midst of our trials will often cost us dearly. And this should not surprise us. This should be the understanding. This should be the normal understanding of things. And yet... The world always has a, fault, a faithless counterfeit. They will say, run, get out, make it easy, do what you need to do to get away. The world's Christless and faithless alternative will never build faith in you. It does not have the aim of testing your faith. It has the aim of getting you out from under the pressure and the hardship. And I want you to hear me as one who wants to encourage you. This is so easily at this point. It's easy for you to assume, Shane, you have no idea how hard it is. And I've listened to many of you. I've cried out to the Lord myself and said, Lord, this is too hard. I can't endure. I don't know how to stand. I am bewildered. And the Lord says, my grace is sufficient for you. Trust me. Trust me. So, we lean in and we love those that God has put around us. We're faithful to the commitments and the covenants that we've made. And we're careful to follow after the Lord hard, knowing that faithfulness to Him 
is what is most important. Why? Because it's not about our comfort. It's not about our happiness. It's not about our health or wealth. It's about our faith. Our faith is what we will take to us with us beyond the grave. What is the trial for? It is for proving the genuineness of your faith. Now, I want you to stay there in verse 7 for just a little bit longer, chapter 1. I know I'm, I'm, I'm doing this, but, but I, I wanted to re-preach this passage anyway. And this is just a good opportunity, so I'm taking it. Verse 7, stay there with me. Notice again, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. What does that mean? These verses tell us how precious faith really is. Do you believe that? Now, let me compare it this way. How valuable is your faith? It is so valuable. It is so valuable that the Lord will take your spouse and say, trust me. Now, that's going to happen to many of us in this room. The Lord will take your child and he'll say, trust me. The Lord will take us through financial, incredible uh, emptiness and despair, emotional turmoil and trial. We'll be in the darkest place of our lives. And the Lord will say, trust me. How valuable is your faith? All of those losses, brothers and sisters, according to the scriptures, all of those losses as profound and utterly unthinkable that we want them to be, all of those losses are worth it if our faith is proved in the midst of it. Now, that's a hard truth to believe, but it's one that the Lord is going to push us in whether we like it or not. Our lives are going forward. There are going to be people in this room that are going to be looking into the casket of their spouse that they, they spent their life with. There are those who are in this room that are going to lose their children. There are those in this room that are going to be in, in utter darkness in their lives and emotions. What can, be, what can be so demanding as this? The Lord says, I want you to trust me. I want your faith to be tried and true because your faith is more valuable than even those things. And the Lord in His grace and His mercy. And we know that sometimes, sometimes it feels like He's just jerking on us hard. But what the Lord is doing is He's taking all of those unworthy objects that we're so often likely to cling to and place our faith in. And He's revealing and exposing them for what they are. They're only blessings. They're not bad. They were just never supposed to be that which we placed our faith in. And He exposes those and He shows them for what they are. And he says, look, these are false and unworthy places for your faith to rest in, as good as blessings as they may be. And he says, I want you to not trust in them or in that thing or in those things, but instead in Christ. Because your faith that's in some other object is not a saving faith. If your faith is in a spouse or in a child or in your marriage or in your stuff or in your things or in your job, it will not save you. Only faith in Christ will. And so he brings us along in our lives and he pulls things out of our lives and he says this, will you trust me? This morning, that's what I want to ask you. That's what I want to ask you. Some of you in the midst, in the very throes of trials right now, are you going to trust the Lord? Are you going to believe that he is more precious than the pain and the sorrow that's coming into your life or that will come into your life? Or are you going to see those things for what they are? Wonderful blessings that come and then go, each and every one. But whatever we may be going through, no matter what we may go through in the future, our faith being proven is more precious. And what is happening, according to verse 7, is this. In the same way that gold is, is, is proven and shown and purified through the, through the furnace, through the testing of fire, it says here in verse 7. Our faith, when our faith goes through this fiery trial, it's like gold. The dross gets burned off. All those objects that we want to place our faith in are seen for what they are. And brothers and sisters, this is a gracious gift that we would never pick for ourselves, but the Lord does for us. He says, I am more precious than this. Trusting in me is more important than these things. All along, all along, were you only using Christianity and the church and even your faith 
as a means to get more of the world? Is that what you were doing? Try your heart here. Is your faith in Christianity, is your faith in the church, is your faith in, in, in just kind of being here this morning, is that a means for you to have a better life in more of this world? I think for all of us we can say, yes, it is a little bit. There are times, and we know this happens. It's happened to me. I remember thinking that I thought I had faith until the Lord pulled something away from me. And I said, wow, I didn't know how much I was trusting in that thing until the Lord pulled it away. And my heart just went with it. And I said, Lord, help me. I didn't know I was trusting in that. And and that that was never needed to be trusted in. That's going to go away. I need to trust in you, Lord. And the Lord is good. He brings us along. So, this uncommon expectation, brothers and sisters. This uncommon expectation is that we are not to be surprised when fiery trials come into our life, but instead we're to expect them as regular. We're to expect them as, as shared. We're to expect them as these, 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 these things that are actually doing something for our faith. We do not receive them as this, just another drudgery, of something I've got to endure. No, it is what the Lord is doing through us to make us more of His and, and to prove our faith. May the Lord do this through us. The second point I want you to notice this morning is this uncommon reaction. The reward of proved, purified faith does not make our trials less hard, does it? I mean, just knowing that, hey, I'm in the midst of this really hard time and the Lord's building my faith here, that's encouraging. But man, that hard is still hard, right? And when these things are hard, we naturally turn to despair and to groaning in these difficulties. However, our text tells us, and it's making a stark contrast here, it's saying that we as those who see Christ and know that he is doing, he's accomplishing faith in us, he tells us there's an uncommon reaction that you're to respond to these fiery trials, these frequent fiery trials. It says in verse 13, this uncommon reaction is this, but, there's the contrast, rejoice. Don't go to despair. Don't go to groaning or murmuring. Rejoice in as far, insofar as you Share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Peter is calling us to turn or to change our reaction. Now, if you're like me, and I believe many of you are, this requires effort. When hardship and struggle and difficulty are happening, my heart automatically spring-loaded, ready to grumble, complain. Oh, this is so hard. Why is this so hard? Why is it on me? Only, only me. I'm the only one with the cloud over my head for walking around like you are, right? It's only me. Instead, we're to rejoice. We're to rejoice, but are we to find this rejoicing in our own hearts? Are we to just say, you know what? I'm not going, I'm just going to have positive thinking here. I'm going to, I'm going to not grumble. Instead, I'm going to rejoice, and I'm just going to draw that out of my soul. Not at all. Absolutely not. It doesn't come naturally. What he says here, notice what he says. He says that there's no way we will, we will turn to rejoicing unless we relate our rejoicing to Christ's suffering. Peter is saying that your rejoicing will only happen, will only be fervent, will only be the rejoicing that is faithful when we relate our suffering or share, or to, to the shared sufferings of Christ. Notice it says, we're to rejoice insofar as you share. That word actually is koinia. It's the word for fellowship. It's interesting. We use the word fellowship. What do you think about when you think of fellowship? Well, almost every time the word fellowship is used in the, in the koinia, the Greek word, every time it is used in our New Testament, it is, talking about, it is talking about sharing the suffering with others. So it's not just we share fried chicken together. It's actually we share suffering together. That's what it means to fellowship. And here it says that we're to share or to fellowship with Christ's sufferings. It says insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Now, does this mean that we somehow contribute to what Christ was doing when he was on earth? Or somehow we add to Christ's sufferings in some way? Not, not at all. I mean, the scriptures never speak of that. Christ's suffering, his life and his death was finished and completed, and he atoned for the sins of his saints. So what does this mean when it says that we are going to share in Christ's sufferings? This is what it means. It means that we that as we face, it means that as we face the ordinary fire of trials for following after Christ, then 
we will suffer. And that this shouldn't surprise us because Christ himself suffered. And by us choosing suffering and to be faithful to follow after Christ, we're affirming not only the identity that we have with Christ, who also suffered, but we're also saying that as we choose suffering to follow after Christ, we're being made more and more in the likeness of Christ, who's the one who redeemed us. So when we choose suffering, when we choose to pursue suffering, we're saying, I'm identifying with a Christ who suffered, and by so doing, I'm becoming more and more like Christ because I'm laying down those things that my heart so desperately wants to have faith in that are not worthy objects of my faith, and I'm turning to trust in Him and Him alone. And when we relate our suffering, here it is, when we relate our suffering for Christ to the suffering of Christ, our Savior, we are then able to rejoice even in our suffering. So when we relate our sufferings for Christ to the sufferings of Christ, we're only then able to rejoice in our suffering as we ought. According to Philippians 1.29, Philippians 1.29 says this, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, do you hear that? For the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Colossians 1.24, Now I rejoice in what? Colossians 1.24 says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings. For what reason? For your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. The apostles, when they were harassed and brought into courts and councils to to try to press them away from Christ and declaring Christ, it says in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, Then they, speaking of the apostles, when they left the presence of the council, they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy of suffering dishonor for the name of their Savior. So, we see here in our passage, again, we're back in chapter 4. Notice with me in verse 13. We see in verse 13 that it does not only relate our rejoicing to Christ's life in the past, right? We look back and say, in the same way Christ suffered, we're also, also to choose that in fellowship with him as he suffered. But verse 13 then turns and calls us to rejoice in a sure and glorious promised future that we can rejoice and be glad in. Notice, it says in our passage in verse 13, that you may also rejoice and be glad. When? When his glory is revealed. This is speaking of Christ's return, our longed-for promised reward of being with him in heaven. Now, do you desire heaven? Let me, let me ask this another way. Do you think you desire heaven? You, you see what I'm doing there? Do you think you desire heaven? Now, I think all of us would say, yes, because I'm supposed to. But I'm not sure if I'm as fervent as I should be. Right? Isn't that where we are? C.S. Lewis, in his probing book entitled The Problem of Pain, he often brings clarity to so many things. And in this case, he brings clarity to our bewildering desires. Listen to what he says. This is C.S. Lewis in his book, The Problem of Pain. There have been times when I think we do not desire heaven at all. You've been there, right? There are times when when we, there's times when I think we do not desire heaven at all. But then he turns and he says this, listen. But more often, I find myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts we have ever desired anything else. Did you hear that? In other words, that longing that's in us, that thing that's insatiable, that's constantly grasping for something beyond what we have, looking for something out there instead of in front of us. That thing is always wanting tomorrow instead of today. That thing is wanting something other than what you have on your desk. He says, we have, ever, have we ever desired anything other than heaven? And then he goes on and says, it is the secret signature of each person's soul. The incommunicable, unappeasable want within all of us. The thing the thing that we desired before 
we met our wives or made our friends or chose our work. And the very thing that we shall still desire on our deathbeds when the mind no longer knows anything of our wife or friend or work. In other words, all of those things that we're trying to attach our faith to, that our hearts are trying to cling to, to say this will bring me joy and happiness and satisfaction, they will all go away except for our God. And that heaven is the place, if Scripture is true, and it is, heaven's the place where our, where our souls will be satisfied in the presence of our Savior. Calvin says that this text actually promises us a twofold joy. We see it here. It speaks of rejoicing and it speaks of gladness. Christ has promised us, promising us lives of rejoicing now, even in the midst of our hardships and trials. And then secondly, this is the twofold joy, and secondly, Christ has promised us the future day when we will be glad when his glory is revealed. Our gladness in a day in, a day in the future. In other words, this is what he means. The first joy is mingled with sorrow and affliction. But the latter is our soul being satisfied in exaltation forevermore. It's the very same promise that Jesus gave to his disciples, isn't it? It's exactly what Jesus promised his disciples and promises us today when he says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 11, Blessed are you when others revile and persecute you. Those are some trials. And utter all kinds of evil against you. Those are fiery trials. And they do all of this falsely, he says, and they're doing all of this according to our passage. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you on my account, meaning because you're a follower of Christ. Now, what does Jesus call them to then? He says, rejoice and be glad. There's our two words. Rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward is great in heaven. For your reward is great in heaven. Don't so root your lives in this world that you forget that there's a heaven awaiting us, brothers and sisters. Our longing to be with Christ and be away from sin and the effects of sin. Our longing to be perfect and complete before Him and our hearts singing His praises. This is why on Lord's Day and hopefully even throughout the week, our souls sing, one with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased with his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. Now finally, let's end with uh, verse 14 and let's look together quickly at verse 14. We have an uncommon expectation, verse 12. An uncommon reaction, that is to rejoice in verse 13. And then finally in verse 14, the uncommon or, or an uncommon affirmation. Affirmation. We're called here to affirm something that in our hearts we rarely believe. And we're to affirm this and we're to believe this in the midst of our trials, which makes it even more difficult. Here Peter gives specifics of a common trial that all of us will face if we're followers of Christ. All of us will receive and have received throughout the ages. And he brings up this common trial, even though this is one of the more common ones, even in the book of 1 Peter, this idea of being spoken harshly against. When one names the name of Christ, meaning that one lives according to Christ by his lordship for Christ's glory, there will be a response by the world. Jesus says it very clearly in his prayer for his disciples. In the high priestly prayer in John 17, he prays for his disciples. He says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. Live for Christ, and the world will hate you. This is why our text states clearly that if you are insulted, and it says insulted for what reason? For the name of Christ. For the name of Christ. Those who name the name of Christ will be insulted. Earlier we find in the book of 1 Peter, ridiculed, reproached, mocked, and disgraced before the world. Now, we shouldn't be pursuing that. We shouldn't be going after that. We should be faithful to Christ and not surprised when that happens. We will likely never be okay with that hardship. Nothing in our flesh is okay with that. But, brothers and sisters, this morning our text tells us we need never to be surprised by this. 
We may never be okay with it, but we need never to be surprised by it. And make no mistake, the bitterness and disdain that's cast at us by those around us for Christ's namesake, we may think, sticks and stones, right? Names will never hurt me. I don't know where that person lived. Uh, It's crazy. Harsh ridicule, insulting words, accusations, mocking. I'd give my goods up to get rid of those things. The frailty of our bodies don't hurt us as much as when loved ones and friends and coworkers and those that are around us, when the world that's around us, we our hearts so desperately want to have approval of, they curse us and they desire our harm. These are hard things. We need not, we need not overlook them. They're not just distractions. They're fiery trials. And when we are insulted in this way, when the declarations of the world come at us, do you know what is likely? What is likely is that we'll begin to believe them. We'll begin to believe that what they say are true, because some of it will be. They'll say, I knew you before you were a Christian. I know what you're like. I know the things that are in your heart. I know who you are, what you're doing. I know what's going on here. You're not better than me. You just think you are. We'll begin believing that because we know that's so true in our hearts. When we're assaulted for the name of Christ, we are prone to believe the insults and the slander. However, Peter here is telling us to to make sure that we affirm a very uncommon truth. And that very uncommon truth Peter is telling us is this. We need to doubt the accusations and the insults of the world and trust what the Lord says about us. And look what he says about us. He says, in the midst of your trials and your insults and your difficulties and your sorrows, you are blessed. You are blessed. You're not being beat up. The Lord isn't just hammering you. You're not simply being being hammered. No, the Lord is blessing you. The Lord is showing you what is most blessed in this world. It's not the things that we so often think. That is, the idea of blessing here is this, that you are indeed particularly favored by our God in the midst of your mockery and scorn. Don't believe the world. Believe what the Lord says. The trial and the reviling could easily be used by the enemy to make you doubt the Lord's care and love for you. Know that when insults and specifically naming the name of Christ, you are living under his pleasure when that happens. His love, his good towards you. Hear this. Prioritize Christ's declaration over the world's accusations. Do you hear that? Prioritize Christ's declaration over the world's accusations. Then when scorn comes, you will receive it. And know that you're favored by God and blessed by him, though disdained and rejected by the world. So in what way is the Lord specifically blessing us? Okay, we've got that idea. He's favoring us, right? Um, We have that idea that the Lord is particularly favoring his people. We are blessed, those who are naming the name of Christ and even receiving trials because of it. So what specific way is he blessing us in the midst of our trials? Those that are insulting and accusing us as well as any other trial that may come our way because of naming Christ. Peter says that we are blessed in this particular way. The Lord is blessing us in the midst of our trials in this way. He's causing the spirit of glory and of God to rest upon us. Do you see that? Many of you know of persons, maybe family members, loved ones, maybe co-workers. They go to churches or congregations that emphasize this. They want more of the spirit. I want more of the Spirit. Well, you can tell them, take them to this passage and say, well, according to our passage here, if you want more of God's promised presence in your life, more of his resting upon you, then when, when, when pushed to be faithful, suffer and you'll get it. Now, that's not what their church is preaching. Um, that's not what their church is saying. But the way we are to pursue Christ's presence His spirit resting upon us is that when given the opportunity to be faithful, we pursue it knowing that suffering will come and his spirit will be what encourages us, 
strengthens us, goes along with us. Now, can we be sure that's true? Is that, is that true? Well, this is what Peter does. He's actually using this phrase here, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. He's actually using what Robert read for us this morning in, in, uh, in Isaiah chapter 11. And in Isaiah chapter 11, listen to Isaiah 11 verses 1 through 3 and tell me who Isaiah is prophesying about. It's very obvious, especially um, as we think of Christmas approaching in a couple months, a few months. Isaiah 11 verses 1 through 3. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Listen. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. That's where Peter's drawing. Now, notice what's going to happen to this one who is the shoot of the stump of Jesse, the branch um, that's going to come forth, this one who's going to be king and reign. Notice what the Spirit resting upon this one will, will do for this one who is promised. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge. And the fear of the Lord will be upon this one. And it says this in verse 3. And his delight, this, this one that's being promised, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. The point here is this, that Peter's making. In the same way that Christ, when he came to earth, was one who had the Spirit of God resting upon him. And everything the Lord did, he did by the power of the Holy Spirit. In his humanity... He had weaknesses like we were, like we have, in every way, yet without sin. And in every way, he was challenged and tempted and tried, like we are. And the Spirit brought him along and caused him to be faithful. That same Spirit that was in the person of Jesus Christ, those who place their faith in Christ, that Spirit is upon you. That Spirit is resting on you in your trials and suffering and sorrow. That same Spirit... Is walking with you through your suffering so that you don't have to sin or abandon your, 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 your place, but instead continue to be empowered by the Spirit of God, asking Him to strengthen you by the Spirit that strengthened our Savior Himself and in His name be able to walk faithfully. So your faith and perseverance then is not based on your strength, your ability, your conniving or instigating things, but instead... The ability for you to persevere is based on the power of the Spirit of God, the very Holy Spirit that rested upon Christ. And through Him, you can face every trial and sorrow and suffering and do so as one who delights in the Lord Himself.